In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Respectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have an exciting episode to talk about. We're going to discuss some of the crazy ways in which Donald Trump tried to stay in power after he lost the presidential election. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the effects that vaccine mandates and vaccine soft mandates have been having. And finally, we're going to have a bit of a theoretical discussion about the idea of treating climate change the way that we have treated the pandemic. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited about this episode today, dude. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, and before we get started, there's actually an update for something that we talked about last week that I would like to very briefly address. And that is the fact that... So so we, we last week, our asshat was Jimmy Dore. And... We talked about how during his show, he put up a the text of a fortune article about Singapore that had been doctored and edited to basically say the exact opposite of what the article actually said. So he made it look like the article was saying that COVID restrictions weren't working when the article was saying literally the opposite of that. So I just wanted to do a quick update. So he, he recently did release a video in which he addressed it. He pointed out the fact that what he put up was misleading and had kind of had, had kind of changed the meaning of the article. And his excuse was that he didn't read the article, that his producer had put up that graphic, and that when he found out that the graphic was misleading that he asked the producer about it, who then said, I made a mistake, I rushed it because I'm an idiot. And then Jimmy Dore said that that producer has now been fired. Now, so to be, so that's that's what he is presenting. That's the version of the truth that that's he is now presenting. That's the best light that he could That's the with. best light, <laughs> yeah. So the best light is that he doesn't read articles that he is doing entire segments about. Here's the thing, though, I just, maybe there's truth to it, but I just don't, I don't believe that all of that is true. I mean, all, all the producer had to do was copy and paste. It would actually, it would have actually taken less time to just copy and paste. Apparently what he did was transcribe it and then change words and then cut out an entire, like an entire sentence. I'm sorry. That's not a rush job. Yeah, that doesn't sound like that rushing. is meticulous. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe maybe it was the producer being manipulative, or maybe Jimmy Dore's just full of shit. But either way, the idea that I was discussing last week that nobody should listen to Jimmy Dore. He is a uh, he is a complete buffoon. And you know m- maybe maybe it's it is still true that he's not necessarily malicious he's just colossally incompetent and stupid either way he doesn't really have anything to offer you yeah. all right he's at best he is an idiotic incompetent person that irresponsibly discusses things that he has no idea about and at worst he's a shyster mm-hmm. but i did but for the sake of being accurate and for the sake of being intellectually honest you know what he isn't uh we wanted to make sure that we we gave a quick update on that. But you know what else we should give a quick update on, Michael? Mm-hmm. What else? The COVID numbers. Good idea. So Let's f- do it. So far in the world, we've reached 256 million cases, which is up from 253 million last week. So that's about 3 million new cases in a week, or about 430,000 per day. Uh, which is down from last week when we were at about 571,000 per day. Um, So far in the world, we've had 5.15 million deaths, 
which is up from 5.09 million last week. So that's about 60,000 new deaths in a week or about 8,500 deaths per day. Um, and that's up from 7,100 deaths per day uh, the prior week. Uh, so far in the world, 53.8% of the population has at least one dose of the vaccine, which is up from 52.7% the prior week. So that's up just 1.1% um, in a week, which is smaller than we've seen before and is very slow. Um, in the U.S. at this point, we've hit 48.4 million cases, which is up from 47.7 million last week. So that's 700,000 new cases in a week, or about 100,000 cases per day. Um, and that's up from the prior week when we were at about 71,000 cases per day. Um, we've hit 788,000 deaths in the U.S., which is up from 781,000 the week before. So that's 7,000 new deaths in a week, or about 1,000 deaths per day, down from 1,300 deaths per day the week before. Um, so far in the U.S., we've got 59% of the population fully vaccinated, which is flat from last week, and 69% that have one dose, which is up 1% from last week. And that's the COVID numbers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Overall, like, not that much is changing. We're, like, kind yeah. of leveling out at pretty high levels of cases, Um high levels of death though not the highest they have been um and you know week to week we see fluctuations but for the most part we're not seeing like huge waves or huge you know ground gained hmm. yeah i really hope that this doesn't just become something that people decide it's time to live with yeah yeah but that's honestly what it's looking like someday yeah i, I don't know i wonder if there's going to be a day when we when covid is still just around running, you know, spreading throughout a yeah. society like it is. Well, it's spreading people. to deer now. Yes. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of things that are not going anywhere, let's talk about uh, Trump. Uh, <laughs> you know, I know that I'm the one that suggested this segment, <laughs> but yeah. reading for the segment reminded me how much I really do not miss talking about Trump. I know. and and But that's why we're doing this segment. So we yeah. don't have to spend another four fucking years after 2024 talking about Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot to talk about with Trump. Uh, specifically, we want to focus on some of the things that have it, is, it has now been revealed that he tried to do in order to stay in office. Yeah. Now, I would just like to point out that the idea of just conceding the election and allowing democracy to just work never occurred to him. Mm -hmm. I know that that seems like a really obvious thing to say, but that that should be the norm. That should be just what you do in a functioning democracy. Yeah. So the fact that he even tried to stay in office after not like after not having won the election mm -hmm. is already authoritarian subvertive yeah now the lengths that he went in order to try to stay in office yeah just make the story even worse mm -hmm. so one of the big things that this actually came out like a, a few months ago but we haven't talked about this so i think it is important to actually discuss it is the fact that apparently uh trump was talking to this lawyer this lawyer that he had reportedly uh, seen on TV and kind of liked. <laughs> that's how you pick your lawyers when you're Donald Trump. That's, that's how you pick your lawyers. The uh, uh, lawyer's name is John Eastman. And so Eastman came up with a six-point plan mm. in, order to, uh, in order to overturn the results of the election. So... First, I want to go ahead and walk you through what that plan would have been. The first step would have been for Trump to try to get the results of seven states thrown out mm -hmm. because they allegedly had competing electors. Now, you might remember that there were there were some states in which a bunch of would-be electors basically came to try to vote when the, the electors actually met 
and then they were turned away. Mm. Now, those electors didn't actually have any power because they hadn't fucking won the election. Gotcha. But they claimed that they had power. So no state actually put forth an alternative set Mm. of electors. They were just a bunch of people saying, hey, we're electors. But they had no authority to do it. Mm. So already, plan falls apart. (laughs) So, But if that hadn't worked, or if that had somehow worked, the idea would have then been for uh, Pence to declare Trump the winner with more electoral votes after the seven states had been thrown out, which mm-hmm. would have made it the the final score 232 to 222 mm. with Trump winning. Uh, and this is all this is all according to the book Peril by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. This this uh, this this idea of this this plan. Now, their idea then was that there would definitely be Democrats up in arms about it because no candidate had reached the 270 uh, electoral votes, which is the majority that you would need in order to win. Yeah. So the next step would have been for Pence to say that because no candidate had reached that, the election goes to the House of Representatives. So mm-hmm. theoretically, if we ever reached a situation in which there was a dead tie in the Electoral College, which is theoretically possible, mm-hmm. all right, which means that there would be it would be 200... And 69 to 269. That is theoretically possible. If that were to ever happen, the election would be would then be thrown to the House of Representatives. Now, the way that would work, now you might think, oh, well, then I guess Biden wins because Democrats control the House. Well, no, because for some reason, the way the Constitution works is that each state delegation gets one vote. Mm. <laughs> All right. So what that means is that if a majority of people within a state delegation are Republican, then the one vote from that state goes to the Republican. And if the majority of them are Democrats, that one that one vote goes towards Democrats. That makes no Currently, fucking sense. <laughs> it makes no fucking sense. All right. Which means that like Wyoming that has one House of Representative, or rather one representative, would have the same amount of votes as California. Sure. Which has so what's like, in the Senate? <laughs> yeah. Which has like, you know, 72,000 uh, people in the House of Representatives. Um, so currently, Republicans control 26 state delegations, hmm. which basically means that Trump would have been the winner because of that. That is some scary stuff. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. That is That is mind-blowing that like there was yeah. this plan put together because like i think what we saw again and again throughout the the aftermath of the election and even before it as they kind of laid the groundwork for uh their election you know fraud claims which was the what underpinned any attempts that they would make to um overturn the results um and i think what we saw again and again was like all of their strategies they were kind of a hodgepodge. They were like, this one might work and this one might work, or we could do this. And all of them were yeah. kind of dependent on at least one like really dubious legal move. Something like in this case, like the the contested electors. Or like yeah. or like Trump like pressuring secretaries of state not to certify their state elections or like Or apparently threatening to fire um the acting attorney general at the time. William Barr. Because, yeah, no, 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 no. After William Barr had resigned. Oh, oh. Uh, Rosen. I'm talking mm-hmm. about Rosen. Yeah. Like, attempting to fire Rosen. And basically, a bunch of people, a bunch of people in the Justice Department basically saying, you do this, we're all resigning. Yeah. Because what Trump wanted him to do was to basically pressure the FBI to continue investigating the baseless voter fraud allegations which had already and remember they had already gone to court yeah 60 times and lost 59 of those court cases yeah and the only one that they won it was a procedural thing that didn't even really add any votes yeah Yeah. right so and in court if you actually read the transcripts when when lawyers were asked point blank are you alleging fraud they would say no 
Mm-hmm. Now, in the court of public opinion, they were doing it. Yep. But in the actual court of law where facts matter, yep. they were not actually alleging fraud. Mm. But it was all and they lost 59 to of those convince cases. the public that exactly. if they did something like if they did something legally, you know, gray, like failing to certify a state's election or electors or like Mike Pence, you know, you know, failing to certify in the in, in Congress or something like that, like there would be at least public support behind something like that. Well, the thing is, he doesn't even have, he wouldn't have even had that authority. Yeah. Like, people yeah, yeah. say he just he just didn't have the balls to do it. Mm-mm. Like, apparently, it literally Trump work. straight up, yeah. Trump straight up said, like, you can either be a patriot or a pussy. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he reportedly said that to Pence before, before like, the, the, the count. Yep. So, the, According to the Constitution, the vice president's role is more of a like it's it's more of a um, honorary role. Yeah. Right. You're counting the votes. That's all. You do not have any power to overturn them. You just don't. Yeah. That's not what the Constitution says. Yep. You don't have that authority. Yeah. Yeah. He- and so Pence was like, OK, I'm not going to do the thing that I don't have authority to do because I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah, I wish I could, buddy. Yeah, and he even, like, pressured state legislatures to, like, nullify the popular vote. And, like, technically, states have the ability to determine how their, um, like, how their electoral votes are decided and allocated. Like, so, theoretically, a state could be like, well, all, all electoral votes will always go to Democrats. Like, that's something, theoretically, a state legislature could do but they have to do it before the election they can't change their election laws after the fact and so like these none of these states actually had any option to like nullify the popular vote but again it was kind of like a dubious legal interpretation tried to be you know trying to be um you know massaged into awarding him even if they could trying to do that is fucking fascist yeah trying to do any of these things regardless of whether they're legal or not is fucking fascist like yeah yeah it's it's it should be immediately disqualifying to his future candidacy i mean he was fucking impeached a second time (laughs) it's like it's it's mind-blowing that he's still on the table i think we should also point out the fact that like like a, a bunch of people pretend that pence is somehow a hero for not actually (laughs) doing it i'd like to point out that he actually reached out to to dan quayle former vice president and the senate parliamentarian to see if he could Mm -hmm. and both of them were like no you don't have the authority to do it yeah the fact that even entertains the idea of doing it if he had the authority to do it should already be disqualifying Mm -hmm. like the idea that he even had to check yeah because that's one of those things where if you actually value democracy and value freedom, your immediate reaction is, I don't even care if I could do this. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to fucking do, do it. You lost. Yeah. Yep. And, and I'd also like to point out another thing that came out recently that is, to me, fucking insane. All right. Is that, rec- is that uh, recently it came out, that an audio came out with, uh, from an interview that uh, Trump had had with um, ABC's Jonathan Carl. Mm-hmm. The audio recording of this interview came out in which uh, Carl asked, quote, were you worried about him during the siege? Were you worried about his safety? Talking about Pence. Trump responded, no, I thought he was well protected. I had heard that he was in good shape. No, because I heard he was in very good shape. But, but, no, I think... And Carl said, because you heard those chants. That was terrible, I mean. And Trump said, he could have, well, the people were very angry. And Carl said, they were saying, hang Mike Pence. (laughs) And then Trump responded with, because it's common sense, John. It's common sense that you're supposed to protect. How can you, if you know a vote is fraudulent, right? How can you pass on a fraudulent vote to Congress? How can you do that? In response to hang Mike Pence, Trump said, it's common sense. Mm-hmm. His own vice president. Yeah. He's the he's Never be loyal the to Trump. Yeah. <laughs> All right? He's not going to be loyal to you back. No. 
He's just not. He is the right? absolute pits. It's amazing that it that the election was this close to begin with. <laughs> and yeah. and what's what's more amazing to me still is that he is he, his rep- reputation has recovered. Like yeah. p- potentially, you know, partially because he's probably out of the limelight, but like so throughout his presidency his approval rating hovered around 42% and his disapproval rating hovered around 53. When he left office, largely because of the, you know, coup that he incited on January 6th, his approval rating dropped to 37% and his disapproval rating soared to 58%. But since then, as he's, you know, continued to exercise power of the Republican Party, but like had a kind of a reduced voice, He's continued to fundraise money, even though he hasn't announced an official run for president in 2024. He's continued to hold rallies, which is something that average citizens don't tend to do. Um, Since then, 538 has continued to track his approval and disapproval ratings. And at this point, he is right back where he was during most of his presidency. His approval rating is 41.4%. And his disapproval rating is 53%. He has recovered everything that he lost by trying to overthrow the United States government. Yeah. And what's, what's crazy still is that Biden has done the opposite over that time. Biden saw approval ratings when he started at 53% with disapproval at 36th. And now it looks much more like Trump. His approval rating is 43 his disapproval is 52. And 538 also tracks Harris's approval rating in like the event, you know, the eventuality of like a Trump Harris uh, matchup. And she's right where Biden is, well, is, is too. So what we're saying is that like the people that support Trump still do. The people yeah. that thought he was terrible after January 6th, um, even though they supported him before, it looks like they support him again. Yeah. He his his contest for 2024, which again, he hasn't officially announced, but everything, including people in his organization, continuing to raise money, continuing to hold rallies, is pointing towards him running again in 2024. Yeah. Yeah. He can So all of this all of this is to point out the fact that he could fucking win again. Yeah. He very well could. Yeah. And honestly, that would be the Democrats' fault. And the reason why I'm saying that is because let's let's think about who they're running against. All right. They're running against a twice a twice impeached, twice lost the popular vote, historically unpopular president whose biggest legislative achievement, whose main legislative achievement was a tax cut where after a decade, 80% of the benefits will have gone to the top 1%, who is a complete elitist, mm-hmm. who completely, who, who during his entire presidency constantly embarrassed us as a nation like at least three times a day who lied out of his ass constantly. The idea that you can't beat this guy, the idea that it's even close, the idea that it's even a competition, speaks to the fact that Americans are so fucking annoyed with the status quo. All right? The, The reason why Trump won in the first place was because Americans were annoyed with the status quo and they wanted they they wanted something different. Now it turns out that thing different was was significantly worse. <laughs> but that's why a lot of people voted for him. Yeah. All right? It's because wages have remained remained stagnant over the last 3 decades. It's because there's so much more focus on the stock market than people's actual wages. It's because almost half of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. It's because we have one of the highest childhood poverty rates in the world. Mm -hmm. It's because we're the only country that doesn't have 
any form of universal health care, which it causes medical bankruptcy to one of the to, to, to medical debt to be one of the highest to be actually, I believe, the highest uh, causes of bankruptcy in America. All of these issues, all of these issues are happening. Yeah. And Democrats are doing nothing. Yeah. When the Democrats passed the stimulus bill, which, by the way, was already a watered down version of the original promise. All right. The original promise was $2,000 checks to everybody. Yeah. That is why we won Georgia. The original promise was that, and then they cut it down to, to 1200 Even though they cut it down, when Democrats passed that, Biden was riding high. Yep. All right? He was riding high on his approval rating. Now, you might argue that a huge part of that could have also been the honeymoon the honeymoon period, mm -hmm. perhaps. You mean but the moment when you wake up from a terrible, terrible nightmare that lasted four years? <laughs> yeah, that's also fair. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say something that no democratic strategist ever fucking says, but it's the most obvious thing in the world. All right. And I'm going to, I'm going to break it down so that even, even democratic strategists can understand it. All right. Materially approvey people's lifey, makey people want to votey for you. -y. <laughs> oh, that's, that's uh like. That's how you speak lobbyist as opposed to like, it's like pig Latin, but lobbyist. <laughs> yeah, it's just exactly. Pig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's, it's the most obvious thing in the world. Yeah. If you actually materially improve people's lives, people will want to vote for you. Yeah. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people hear that. A lot of intellectually dishonest people hear that and think, well, your argument is that the reason why, why Biden is not doing well is because he's just not liberal enough. No, mm. it's because he's not materially delivering. Yeah. All right. Now, material, materially delivering on things does happen to include implementing more progressive policy. But if you want people to actually vote for you, you have to improve people's lives. Yeah. I mean, you know what happened during the FDR administration? But And the reason I'm bringing this up is because there have been several people that have been basically like that have been basically pointing to FDR as an example of what not to be for Joe Biden, like McConnell and fucking fucking um, Abby Spanberger, who basically recently said that like Americans didn't elect Joe Biden to be FDR. FDR got elected four times. Yeah. <laughs> like what the fuck he are you talking about? He might be the about? most popular president. <laughs> he, I mean, based on that alone, he is the most popular president in, to be in fair, American unfair history. advantage, you know, being able to be elected four times. <laughs> being able, yeah, perhaps. But, like, Republicans had to change the—they changed the Constitution to make sure that that would never happen again. Yeah. All right? Democrats—and I actually just recently found this out—Democrats, during the FDR administration— were able to take control of 80% of the House of Representatives. Mm. So it wasn't right? just the man. Yeah. Well, they were they, because they were materially delivering. I mean, yeah. we have this idea that, oh, historically, the, the president is going to lose the midterm election because, you know, that's, that's, just, that's just what happens because people are trying to fight against the president. Mm -hmm. But the times in which that has happened, we've had a president that just did not materially deliver. Yeah, they're fighting against stagnation. Yeah, they're fighting against stagnation. So if we actually want to beat Trump, the solution is not to shame people by talking about how terrible Republicans are. They are terrible. And we should talk about that, but that's not the strategy. The strategy is materially improve people's lives pass shit that actually helps people yeah all right you do that you win yeah you don't do that we're stuck with trump for another four years so now it's time for a more lighthearted segment tips for good so nathan why do we do tips for good every week well michael we do tips for good every week because if something strange mm -hmm. In your neighborhood, mm -hmm. who are you gonna call? Tips for good. Ghostbusters. Oh, <laughs> no, no, it's Ghostbusters. Tips for good would rhyme better. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, actually, if something <laughs> strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Tips, Tips for, for good. good. Yeah. Oh, that should have been the that, that, that should have been, been the theme song. You know what that yeah. would have done? What would that have done, Michael? It would have made the world a little bit of a better place. I think I think so, too. I think that would have made the world a great place. And maybe that's really what we're doing here. Yeah. Mm. So, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? Our tip for good this week is kind of about mindset and framing. Um, so a bit, maybe a bit of an esoteric tip for good, but it's essentially um, change the way you frame success when it comes to government programs. So what kind of sparked this tip for good was thinking about the U.S. Postal Service. And, you know, a while ago, The Economist put out a tweet and it said something like, you know, the U.S. Postal Service has like a 90% approval rating despite losing millions of dollars every year. And you hear that and you're like, man, that's crazy. Why, why, why would an organization that loses millions of dollars have such a high approval rating? Until you realize that it's not a business. It's a public service that operates yeah. at a business to help reduce, like, you know, to help fund it by the people that use it. But the idea that it loses money is a problem of framing. It just costs yeah. money because we want it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when... When you build a road, is that losing money? Yeah, exactly. No, of course not. <laughs> In fact, toll like, roads not suck. Like, yeah. <laughs> the ones yeah, that don't like... lose money, we hate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a complete, it's a fundamentally flawed way of viewing it. And it comes down to this, this sort of like uh, unfettered capitalistic view that a lot of people have mm -hmm. of the world and sometimes it just it gets applied in places that it does not need to be yeah. applied. And the point that they're making, or the point that if you were steel manning their argument, they'd be making, is that, you know, this indicates inefficiency. You know, if the U.S. Postal Service operates at a $40 million deficit and then FedEx does the exact same job and makes a profit, isn't the U.S. Postal Service, you know, couldn't it be more efficient and therefore cost us as taxpayers less money the answer is no yes there's probably opportunities to improve efficiency but the fact that the u.s postal service goes the last mile you know the fact that it serves every single house in the united states like these these are crazy things for a business to do and obvious yeah. things for a public service to do well and also it goes to what your priority is if yeah. your priority is for an organization to make money that's not going to benefit you if, unless you're a part of that organization, mm -hmm. then yeah, you know, FedEx is great. But if your priority is to get your shit delivered to you. Yeah. I mean, postal service. Yeah. <laughs> and efficiency is awesome, right? Like efficiency enables a lot more in the future. That's the real value, right? Like if you save money now, you can invest it somewhere else later. But the measure of the success of a government service is not necessarily efficiency. It's, you know, quality. its ability to execute the service it provides. Yeah, it's the quality that it provides. So if you frame, if you reframe government services to think about them as, you know, a service for you rather than a business, um, I think it can make a lot more sense the types of decisions that policymakers are making. And that's tips for good. And for our second segment, we wanted to talk about vaccine mandates. And unlike our previous conversations about them, where we were talking about, like, you know, from a more principled stance, do they, do they hold up? Do they make sense? Are they appropriate? We wanted to talk about, like, are they working? Are they yeah. having a, an effect that we want them to have? Yeah. So to steel man the argument for a second, all right, one of the most common things that you hear from people when it comes to, and, and by the way, when we're talking about vaccine mandates, we're specifically talking about them in the context of businesses, all right? We're yeah. not talking about vaccine mandates necessarily on a governmental level. It's mm -hmm. more, we're talking about specific businesses mandating that their employees get vaccinated, or in some yeah. cases, 
they they either get vaccinated or get like a weekly or a daily test yeah. or something like that. So because we're we're not even talking about the government. Here. Yeah, and those are the kinds of mandates that we're talking like that we have at this point. Like, yeah, the only ones that are like federally in place still are on federal employees, and so we can really treat those in pretty much the same way as we are talking yeah. about the business ones. And so to steel man the argument, I want to I want to reference something that our uh, our good good friend of the pod uh, Kyle Chaska pointed out when we when we had him on last time um where there are some of these hospitals that have pretty high pretty pretty high not unvaccinated rates and if a mandate were were put out that basically said that you have this amount of time to get vaccinated or you're fired the argument is that some of these some of these organizations including organizations that might be more rural mm-hmm so you know maybe a place where there's not there's there's a there's uh it's the only hospital within a few miles so understaffing really hits them a lot harder than if they were than if they were in a city um that that could actually end up doing more harm than good so then the question is if we're talking about cases of a business where there's a significant portion of people that are not vaccinated and they end up having a vaccine mandate, have we seen the effect that, or in effect being that these people are just leaving? Mm-hmm. And based on the current evidence, that's kind of just not happening. Yeah. So uh, according to uh, the, the World Economic Forum, I'm... Currently, despite the fact that there was a survey done by the Kaiser Family Health Foundation in which uh, of people who are unvaccinated, where 72% of unvaccinated workers said that they would quit if their employer offered, if they, their employer forced them to get vaccinated or if their employer said that there is, there is a mandate. Mm. All right. Now, that's a scary number. Yeah. However... In terms of United States hospitals, the number of people who have left have ranged from 0.02% of the staff to 4.7% of the staff. Hmm. So to so some examples. Um, Parkview Medical Center in Colorado. 56 workers left out of 3,000 total workers. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford Health System in Michigan. 400 workers left versus 33,000 total workers. Um, Inva Health System in Virginia, 89 out of 20,000. Valley Health in Virginia, 72 out of 6,000. St. Luke's University Health Network in Pennsylvania, 155 out of 17,000. Maine Health in Maine, of course, uh, <laughs> 58 out of out of 23,000 Yale New Haven Health System in Connecticut 94 out of 28,000 Virtua Health in New Jersey 120 out of 14,000 mm-hmm. um, UC UNC Health in North Carolina 70 out of 30,000 Truman Medical Center in Montana 39 out of 5,000 yeah so they're not quitting. No, yeah. At least well below 1% of them are quitting in most cases. Yeah. If anybody well below at 1% at the highest like 4.7%. Yeah. And 4.7% is a lot. Like if that if that if that were happening at every single hospital, we would be in pretty dire straits. But the yeah. but it's just not. It's not. And yeah. and the thing is like experts and union reps in these different industries and people that lead hospitals all seem to be reporting that it's going fine. Like yeah. even though Republican news outlets like Fox news is really pushing that like labor and supply shortages are due to the vaccine mandate. That's just not what's being reported from the leaders of these organizations. Yeah. But you know what is happening? More people are getting vaccinated. Yeah. Yes. So, exactly. for example, <laughs> so for example, uh, NPR pointed to a study 
of uh, Houston Methodist Hospital, which required its uh, 25,000 workers to get vaccinated. So before the mandate, about 15% of the employees were unvaccinated. By June, that percent dropped to to 3%. Hmm. And then in July, 2%. And only, and remember, there are 25,000 workers, only a total of 153 were fired or resigned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're seeing similar (laughs) results um, across like most of these big organizations that are putting these, these mandates in place. Um, Like, like uh, Tyson foods, they make all your favorite chicken products. Uh, And and at the start of August, less than half of their 140,000 employees were vaccinated. And by the deadline of their mandate at the end of October, 96% of the staff was fully vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, NYPD, there was this huge, Mm -hmm. there was this huge Fox news craze saying, oh my God, there's going to be mass resignations if Bill de Blasio forces, (laughs) forces cops to get vaccinated. Because any angle, any, any story they can take from a crime angle, crime is going to go through the roof because of vaccine mandates. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know what ended up happening? What? About, about. Uh, 89 people, 89 cops ended up leaving the force, which only makes up 0.3% of the entire NYPD. Yeah. 0.3%. So they lost 0.3%, which apparently were people that didn't value public safety, Mm. which Hmm. if you're a cop who doesn't value public (laughs) safety, I mean, yeah, I, I, you will be missed. <laughs> and and employer after employer is seeing success of this level. Like a tri- employee attrition of of well under 1% and vaccination rates you know getting into the mid to upper 90s. And the difference there I think in most cases is like religious exemptions um which is like often approved. I think there are also health exemptions um and things like that under most of these Which health policies. exemptions make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then many of them also have testing alternatives. Um, yeah. So those, those are the kinds of things that drive the discrepancy between um, like, you know, 100% and the current vaccination rates. But like this, it seems almost obvious to say, but vaccine mandates are really fucking effective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They yeah, really are. Exactly. And in fact, there's there's some more pretty good news from that. So the uh, the the CMS, which is the uh, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, mm-hmm. actually recently decided that it was no longer going to fund hospitals that uh, allowed their patients to be unvaccinated. Hmm. Yeah. Which... That's a, it's a huge source of funding for a lot of these hospitals. So yeah. this is going to be a huge incentive for hospitals to start instituting vaccine mandates for their in patients, fact, uh, or their staff, for their staff. Oh, for their staff. Gotcha. Yeah. For their staff. Yeah. Cause I think, um, I think only like 41% of hospitals at this point have vaccine mandates, which is like much lower than I was expecting for the medical industry. Yeah. But, yeah. but this will definitely put a lot more pressure on that. And if, if these, you know, case studies that we've been talking about are any indication people are very loud about being against vaccines. They're very vocally committed to whatever repercussions come with them, but very few of them are willing to follow through on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I will admit, I, I actually like after our initial conversation with Kyle, I actually, I did have concerns that there might actually be a large number of people that quit in order to, in order to avoid mm-hmm. vaccines. Yeah, um, I th- I thought that could be possible, and yeah, some are, mm-hmm. but it's not a super significant amount, and the benefit is that you're ending up with a significant higher percentage of people that are actually a significantly higher percentage of people who are actually getting vaccinated. Yeah, so. You know, normally, as a good little civil libertarian, uh, I initially don't like the idea of businesses 
exerting assert, uh, exerting control over the lives of their employees. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, as I've said before, I kind of view it no different than a government. And for me, the the question for if a government should should limit the freedom of somebody or you know mandate someone do something always comes down to is this something that could potentially hurt somebody else like is 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 preventing them from doing this preventing them from hurting somebody else mm-hmm. and then of course is it is it necessary is it something that will actually have the intended impact yeah and so the first was already true all right the first was already true getting vaccinated is about preventing people from actually hurting from hurting other people Mm -hmm. and it turned and it's looking like at this point that the second part is also true that it's actually having the intended impact where more people are getting vaccinated so which yeah which is not actually that surprising when you poll people about their feelings about vaccines so like there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy back in like december right when around 40% of people said, I'm going to wait and see how this goes, right? And then another 14% said, I'm definitely not getting it no matter what. And about 10% or so said, oh, I'll only get it if it's required. So that wait and see population plus the required population, that's that's your ticket. That's going to be yeah. the people that are most likely to get it and the most likely to respond to something like a mandate. And what we're seeing now is that that definitely not going to get a population is more vocal, is, you know, more bark than bite and is getting vaccinated anyway. And so, like, over time, we've seen just more and more people responding to those incentives. Because, like, because the thing is, like, people are, are, again, super vocal about the principle of the thing. And they're super vocal about their, uh, you know, discomfort um and worries, right? But their worries are not that significant. One study, which is the Census Household Pulse Survey in July, found that, you know, 53% of people cited side effects as a reason for remaining unvaccinated. So like like feeling ill after, like being a little sick, Mm, that's a pretty weak reason. You're not gonna you're not gonna like quit your job over getting a little sick. Forty percent said they were just waiting to see if it was safe. Again, like if someone's just prodding you to get it, and more and more people around you are getting it, and it seems fine. That's pretty convincing. Thirty-seven um, percent of people said they don't trust vaccines. Twenty-seven percent said they don't trust the government, and twenty-six percent said they don't need it. So, like each one of those, you can kind of chip away at. And so really, like, aside from the population that is vehemently anti-vaccine and also, like, job mobile, to be honest, and and job mobile to a company that, like, either has under 100 employees or, like, out of the hospital system, like, as more and more companies Im- impose these requirements, the pressure is going to be ramped higher and higher for people to um, get vaccinated. And... You know, it's not obvious that if you get fired or leave your job because of the vaccine mandate that you'll be able to collect even unemployment because, like, you know, you can't collect unemployment if you're fired for cause, like violating company policy. And if the company's policy is be vaccinated or be fired, then that's cause. So, like, I think there's just so much opportunity to go after and just, you know, apply incentives to the majority of people who are unvaccinated who have fairly weak reasons to be unvaccinated. And then the more convinced minority of people that are more vehemently against the vaccine, we can try to continue to convince those people and we can ramp up the pressure because ultimately it seems like 1% or a half percent or below are the people that are actually willing to accept the consequences. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Our asshat this week is Arizona Representative Paul Gosar. Paul Gosar, come on Mm, down. Come on down, man. See, 
a lot of House of Representative members, they don't get a lot of time in the limelight, you know, yeah. and that's sad. Yeah. Now this guy yeah. gets a lot of time in like, you know, the tinfoil hat alien space lasers limelight, um, yeah. and and it's nice to get him out, you know, in the mainstream. <laughs> yeah. Well, this this is also the same guy that during I believe this was the two the the two thousand eighteen election where he was he was running for re-election and there was this ad where so apparently it comes from a very big family mm-hmm. where he has a bunch of siblings and there was an ad where like six of his siblings were all telling people basically fuck this guy don't vote for him vote for the <laughs> now it's only 10 percent of his siblings so you know <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway this isn't the first that we've heard of of uh of Paul Gosar. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did you do this time to get on our show? So this time, so you know how, uh, it, I, I assume this has happened to you in your own place of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes when you have disagreements with someone in your place of work, yeah. you just gotta like send out a video of you uh, brutally murdering that person. No, no. Like, you know how that is? Nope. If, uh, no, no, that is not a normal thing. If there's any coworkers of mine listening to this, I've never done that. That is <laughs> not something that we do endorse on this show. <laughs> oh, you, <laughs> you don't not, do that? Not normal. No. Because it turns out uh, in the House of Representatives, if you do that, then you get to keep your job. Yeah. 50% of the people are like, Hey, there should be no consequences. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, so Paul Gosar tweeted out an altered clip, uh, from the, the credits of an animated series or anime series. However you say it, uh, called attack on Titan in which he put his own face on the face of some other character Mm. who swung a sword, uh, at a character who he had, put uh, AOC's face on yeah. and killed her. To be fair, to be fair, I don't think he edited, he didn't produce the video, but he certainly yeah, shared not. it. He certainly shared it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. first off, dude, you're not that badass. I mean, <laughs> Jesus. even your you siblings probably don't, even don't have a sword like you. in your office. You probably <laughs> have never held a sword in your life. All right? Like, also, you're, I mean, you're you're a Trump brown noser white dude in Congress. Like, yeah. you are the definition of unlikable. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, uh, after this happened, there was a House vote to censure him, and I would just like to point out that House vote went 223 to 207, and the only Republicans that voted for the censure were uh, Liz Cheney from Wyoming, who continues to impress us with the bare fucking minimum of human decency. <laughs> um, and representative Adam, Ki- Adam Kissinger, Kissinger, mm-hmm. I, I, I Kinsinger, Kinsinger, however you fucking, yeah. I don't know. Fuck him. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so let's just point out the fact that 207. Uh, and, and by the way, one Republican, uh, David Joyce from Ohio voted present. So like, that's just, voting neither way yeah. uh 207 republicans were like yeah you know tweeting out a picture in which you're brutally murdering your colleague totally fine totally, chill. totally not a it, it totally doesn't create a hostile work environment yeah uh, you know it's just cartoon <laughs> <laughs> literally in any other business in america this guy would have been immediately, immediately fired. fired yeah not even but let course, back in the building like but of course in congress there. In Congress, you know, the, 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 the building where people are making decisions that affect every single person in the United States, mm-hmm. they're held to a lower standard than a fucking shit. Anyone else. Yep. <laughs> so congratulations like, to Paul Gosar for being our Asshat of, of the Week. week. Okay, so for our last segment, we are talking about a really, you know, a fun, lighthearted topic, global catastrophe. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so specifically, I mean, why wasn't this? Why wasn't this a good actually? This you're week? so right. We're talking about two global catastrophes. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do a little bit of compare and contrast. So, so um, last week, uh, world leaders who had been meeting in Glasgow, Scotland, um, hammered out a new climate agreement. Um, and it took a you know a couple weeks of negotiation, a lot of like hand wringing back and forth, and they landed on an agreement that you know they're very proud of, and pretty much everybody agrees is insufficient. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is the first time that climate plans have been updated since the Paris Climate Accords in 2015, um, and in you know. At the agreement that time, the commitment was to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by uh, 2100, 2100. Um, and that, the reason they picked that is because, you know, uh, at that point, uh, you know, models have indicated that we would be just irredeemably screwed so to reach that you know we have to do a lot like emissions need to fall by 45 percent by 2030 and on the trajectory we're on right now instead they're expected to rise 14 percent just over the next nine years so they got together they made a bunch of pledges um you know they put out a lot of you know big numbers and you know they did it they backed off of the 1.5 degrees that they agreed to at the paris climate accords and all the pledges added up will reach 1.8 degrees by 2100 and that's if everyone keeps their promises which no one fucking does because the result of this was a uh, you know was that they quote request countries to quote revisit and strengthen their plans by 2022. So basically, it's a strongly worded letter yeah. to do something that's not even enough. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the most they could promise is not enough, and we're not going to do it. Yeah. So, so we are so <laughs> so we're so fucked. We're so fucked, and it got me thinking, like. We're existentially fucked. And the only difference between this and COVID is that we're more fucked just further away. So, yeah. so one study found that right now, currently, climate change drives 5 million deaths per year due to extreme weather events, mostly like heat extreme heat and extreme cold that's already more deaths per year than covid right another study by the journal of natural nature communications found that climate change is expected to drive 83 million uh, deaths of excess mortality by 2100 so the same study found that for every 4434 metric tons of co2 that we add beyond the 2020 rate of emissions, we will kill one person. Which that 4,434 tons of CO2 is equivalent to the current lifetime emissions of 3.5 Americans. Hmm. If a disease had that kill rate, it would be the deadliest disease ever. And, and we could stop it with money. <laughs> Yeah. Like, like, there's a cost. So a, a Morgan Stanley, recent Morgan Stanley anal analysis found that um, in order to address climate change, we would need to invest $50 trillion in five key areas by 2050, right? That's a lot of money. $50 trillion bucks is a lot of money. 2050 is 29 years away. That's $1.7 trillion per year globally. That's what it would cost. 
which is the size of a single U.S. COVID relief bill. Hmm. It's huge. But climate change, as we mentioned, is already killing more people than COVID and will be even worse down the road. Another estimate was significantly higher. It found that by 2030, we, need to, we needed to invest $4.13 trillion each year. Again, the U.S. alone spent $4 trillion combined addressing COVID. Again, this is a huge amount of money. This is the most we'd ever put into the economy at once. But the threat from climate change, which we're currently funding at $632 billion a year globally, is like, like many times worse, but it's just like less obvious. And so we're not yeah. investing in it. Yeah. I mean, remember, there were a bunch of idiots that were pretending that COVID wasn't a problem. Yeah. The COVID wasn't a big deal. Yeah. All right. Right in front Trump of Trump was eyes. straight up lying about yeah. it to our face. So, you know, yeah, and that was happening right in front of in front of our eyes. So, I mean, if people were too stupid to take COVID seriously, yeah, then of course people are going to be too stupid to to take climate change seriously. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people don't even fucking believe it. Yeah. And by the way, I I know that this, I I just like to point out this is another reason why it is essential for Democrats to get their shit together mm-hmm. and to actually do things that make people want to vote for them. Yeah. Because if we end up with Trump for another four years, that's four more years of us doing nothing to yeah. address climate change that we just cannot afford. We can't, yeah. Yeah. In seven years, we could have, we, we could be irredeemably, you know, past the point of no return. Yeah. So, I mean, it's essential to the survival of the planet that Democrats get their shit together. Yeah. It's kind of remarkable. It really blows my mind that, like, all it takes is for an issue to be slightly less obvious, slightly less, um, like, affect slightly fewer rich people directly for it to just get significantly less investment just the dollars you know and the thing is like the numbers i quoted for our investment in covid they were just the explicit dollars that we did that we gave right like that was just the actual dollar money that we invested much less the billions of dollars probably trillions of dollars based on various estimates that we gave up in growth by shutting down right But the thing is, that's only one side of the analysis. That's only one side of the ledger. Because as we've talked about on this show many times in in responding to the economic arguments about COVID, letting everyone die or letting 2% of the population die would have been way worse economically. And the same is true of climate change. You know, if we let our our planet... (laughs) be destroyed causing i mean the economy won't fucking matter yeah well yeah that's for sure true yeah that's for sure true but like at the very least you're talking about economic collapse that's the best case scenario 632 billion dollars a year globally yeah it's crazy how little we're putting towards something like for COVID, it was like all right we're gonna write a blank check we're gonna do we're gonna put whatever money it takes because money is really the obstacle right like it's just resources we've got a lot of smart people give them the money point them at the right problem they'll solve it you know so it's it blows my mind that we just can't take climate change as seriously but you're right it's like further away it's less obvious um there are some ways in which our response is similar for example where we're going to leave poorer countries behind in both cases <laughs> they're like the the climate justice was on the table at the the cop 26 uh climate conference and uh yeah providing funding to like help poorer countries uh you know not bear the cost of the economic 
um, you know, the economic growth that rich countries had already achieved uh, by polluting the atmosphere. Um, yeah, they definitely passed on that. Um, and both, to your point, Nathan, inspire lots of conspiracy theories and denial because it's easier to deny it for now. And with that, we'll end our show as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is Thanksgiving break. Mm. I'm, I'm looking forward to starting Thanksgiving break after tomorrow. It's, it's been a semester. Mm. It's been a rough semester. Like personally and otherwise, it'll be really nice to just, to just break for Thanksgiving break, you know? Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, that sounds really good. What about you, Michael? What's your highlight? Uh, my highlight is that uh, this weekend, Brie and I are going up to New York City. Uh, I do not know why, because it, surpri- it is a surprise. Um, but I'm really excited, and it's going to be... I hope the surprise is good, because I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's going to be really fun. Yeah, wonderful. Hope you enjoy. Thanks, man. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again.